Glory. Glory. Glory is one of those words you kind of have to say that way. It's a word most normal people don't really use. You tend to hear it only in epic battle scenes, like, for the glory of Gondor, or from Christians, for the glory of God. We used to actually have someone at Redeemer who would respond occasionally in the service, just say, glory. I kind of missed that, so feel free. Just because most people don't use that word glory all that much doesn't mean it's not something that we're chasing. Many people are chasing glory all the time. Significance, importance, excellence, greatness, honor, attention, social media influence. Now, for Christians, we can often recognize the problems with chasing after that kind of glory. But I think sometimes we fall into another temptation to chase the glory that we feel when we see God's kingdom come in and through us. That sense of internal righteousness. I'm aligning myself with God's purposes and it feels so great. We might even use battle language. I'm going to fight for God's kingdom or go down trying. And there's something that feels good about that because after all, we are made for glory. But there's a temptation in it too. You see, in the kingdom of God, glory comes not through fighting ferociously for a kingdom cause, but in surrender to the one in charge of the kingdom. Today's gospel passage challenges us to find glory the way Jesus does, through surrender. This morning, we're looking at John 12, focusing on three words, three statements of Jesus that reorient our hearts toward that posture of surrender. And the first word that Jesus says is this, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This passage from John is a hinge in the book. In the church calendar, Palm Sunday isn't until next week, but in the book of John, Jesus has already had his moment of triumph, his triumphal entry. People shouting, Hosanna, here comes the king, glory. Up until now, Jesus has been teaching and showing signs of who he is. And over and over, he said, my hour isn't here yet. It's not time. But all of a sudden, Jesus says, the hour has come. It's glory time. Let's go. Now, the crowds probably expected that this glory time would be connected to that triumphal entry. Let's crown him. All right, I'm ready. But that's not what Jesus means. And it's not the triumphal entry that triggers Jesus' sense that the time is now. No. It's the arrival of these foreigners, the Greeks. They might actually be ethnically Greek, but more like a broader term, Greek-speaking Gentiles who were in town for the Passover feast, the type of people called God-fearers. Because they weren't full converts to Judaism, but they still came to worship. The, the, the key thing is that ethnically they were not Jewish. They'd probably heard about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. They wanted to see what was going on. Sir, we would like to see Jesus. We've heard about his glory. It's really interesting that they come to Philip first, isn't it? He was from Bethsaida, which was a bilingual town. Jews and Greeks living side by side near an area where there were a lot of other Greek-speaking people. And actually, Philip's name is a Greek name, as well as Andrew's name also, not a Hebrew. 
So this, these are people who can put a foot in both word, worlds. You can understand why these Greek speakers were comfortable coming to them. But these disciples are a bit nervous to go to Jesus. That's why they go together. Because <laughs> Jesus had been very clear that his primary ministry is to the people of Israel. They're probably not sure what he's going to say. So what is it about the arrival of these uh, others that tells Jesus it's time? Well, there have been hints of a greater mission of Jesus throughout John. Last week, John 3, God so loved the world that he sent his son. John 10, I have other sheep that aren't in this sheep pen. I must bring them in. John 12, 19, right before our passage, the Pharisees are dismayed at how many people are following Jesus after he raised Lazarus, and they say, look how the whole world has gone after him. Then these representatives of the whole world land on his doorstep and say, sir, we want to see Jesus. That was us, you know, most of us. We weren't in the position of the disciples or even the crowd. We were the Gentiles, the ones on the outside, the ones now asking in hope and eagerness, sir, we want to see Jesus. Are you just for Israel or are you for us too? That's what Jesus recognizes as his cue. If I'm to be a savior for the whole world, not just one nation, one ethnicity, it's not going to come through ruling as an earthly king or even through my miracles. If you want to see me, don't look there. If you want to see me, you have to see me lifted up on the cross. You have to see me die, buried in the earth like that seed. If you want to see me, I have to surrender, and so do you. We can't see Jesus if we just look at his victory. Jesus' glory comes by way of surrender, even unto death. And look at the bounty of it. This single seed surrendering to the cold, dark ground, dismantled, but growing again into a harvest of many seeds and much fruit. The one man surrendering to death, silent and still in his burial cave, rising again to attract not just a handful of disciples, not just one people group, not just one nation, but to make a new people out of all peoples, even us who were so far from him in time and geography. Glory! The second word, Father, glorify your name. Jesus has faith that his surrender will end in glory and victory, but that doesn't mean he doesn't dread the pain. I think this was a temptation for him until the very end, that temptation towards self-preservation. Look at what he prays in verses 27 and 28. My soul is troubled. It's really, it's a much stronger word than that. It's a word of really deep emotion. Just as when he sees the grief of Lazarus' loved ones and when he thinks about Judas betraying him. Similar to what we read Jesus was experiencing in the Garden of Gethsemane, overwhelmed with sorrow and grief, wracked with anguish. Or in Hebrews, praying with fervent cries and tears. The grief is real. That dread of pain, the anxiety. All these things any of us experience when we know we have to do something really hard and painful and vulnerable. 
Jesus feels all of that. And he wrestles with it. And it's that wrestling that's reflected in his two prayers in these these verses. Most of our translations put a question mark on that first one. But there's no punctuation in the original. So the question is, is Jesus actually praying, Father, save me from this hour? Or is he just wondering if he should pray it and then choosing not to? Given what we read in Matthew about what Jesus prays in Gethsemane, I think we can affirm that this is a both-and prayer of Jesus. Father, I'm scared. I don't want to do this. Save me. That's the honest prayer of my human being, the truth about what's going on inside. But there's another truth too. Not my will, but yours be done. I choose to follow you. Father, glorify your name. Both are true. Jesus' honest wrestling doesn't negate his trust-filled choice to do the will of the Father. And the Father affirms Jesus' obedience. I've glorified it. I will glorify it. Your life has honored me. Your obedience unto death will honor me too. And I will bring the kingdom through your surrender to my will. Glory. As Jesus' disciples, we're always facing this choice too this choice between self-preservation and sacrificial faithfulness. The choice between doing things in a way that feels safe and comfortable, that makes us feel good and in control, or doing things God's way. And related to that, the choice between pursuing the things we want and think right, or surrendering even the things we are most sure are from God, back to God. Because sometimes we're so sure that we're fighting for the things God wants us to fight for. Justice, life, freedom, dignity, flourishing, holiness, all good, all worth fighting for. But this prayer of Jesus reminds us, doing God's will not in God's way is not God's will at all. Fighting for truth without deep love and kindness isn't truth at all. Truth is something we live Advocating for things we know to be right without deep humility and mercy isn't right at all. Doing God's will not in God's way is not God's will at all. Once again, this has been a week in which the national news is grievous, heavy. Eight people shot dead in Atlanta, six of them Asian women. The shooter, a young white man, baptized only a few years before in a Christian church. It seems like this young man thought he was doing God's will, ridding himself of sexual temptation. But doing God's will, not in God's way, is not God's will at all. The way of Jesus does not say, go buy a gun. It says, put away your sword. In the way of Jesus, women are not a temptation to be slain, but rather in the words of this prayer directed to Jesus from Pastor Irina Kim Eubanks. You also know what it means to have your belly lavishly fed, feet lovingly washed, body skillfully tended to, burial clothes thoughtfully prepared, existence generously supported by women. Those whose bodies were deemed a temptation, unclean, even shameful, were at the center of your ministry, present by your side, and given honor 
in your sight. In the way of Jesus, those seen as foreign were not those to be always kept outside, but those to be brought in and embraced as family, not those to be killed, but those worth dying for. That is the way of Jesus. Over and over, we must choose to lay down our swords, put down our fists, let go of the things that mean the most to us, the things we would die for, and give them to the Lord. Father, here's what I want, but glorify your name. Not my will, but yours be done. Father, protect me, protect us from doing your will my way, because I know that that's not your will at all. That prayer of surrender, even when it feels like something in us is dying, that surrender is the place in which God's glory in us grows because it forms us to be like Jesus. And ultimately, that's what God's glory looks like, Jesus. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Glory. The third word. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Judgment, not a word that we like. And yet here, judgment and glory go hand in hand. How can that be? It's not judgment as condemnation, but as assessment, as a clear statement of, here's the truth of things. Coming face to face with the truth can feel like a crisis. That Greek word for judgment is the word from where we get that word, crisis. There's something happening here that requires a decision. And the decision made in response will divide people into one or two camps, sort of like a magnet. A magnet attracts, but it also repels, depending on the object's posture towards it. Jesus says, I will draw all people to myself like a magnet, but evil and those who choose to follow after will be repelled, cast out. Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil talks about moments in our lives as individuals and communities that function as what she calls catalytic events. A catalyst, you might know, is a science term. I wish Dr. Daniel Becker were with, were with us here today so I could look at him and nod in agreement. Catalyst is something that jumpstarts a significant change, a transformation. These catalytic events in our lives are often painful and chaotic, but they open up the possibility of real change and transformation by the Spirit. So you can think of Saul meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus. That's one example of a catalytic event in Scripture. When we experience one of these events, we always face a choice to surrender to transformation, new ways of seeing and acting and being by the Spirit, or to go back to the way things were, the easier way, the way that preserves our being, that feels comfortable, less risky, surrender or self-preservation. Ironically, of course, Jesus says that when we choose the way of self-preservation, we'll actually lose ourselves. But when we choose the way of surrender, we'll gain ourselves and find him too. One Christian who experienced one of these catalytic events and chose to embrace surrender was Oscar Romero, now a saint in the Catholic Church. Oscar Romero was a priest in El Salvador in the 20th century during a time of really great, a lot of violence in that nation. Much of it government violence against the poor. Those of you who attended Amos, this is 
going to be a theme for the day. For most of his career, Romero had the reputation of being a mild-mannered priest, someone who wouldn't rock the boat or challenge the authorities. I'm sure he was very faithful, but because of, it was because of that harmless reputation he was installed as the Archbishop of San Salvador in 1977. Well, less than a month later, Romero experienced his catalytic event. His good friend, a priest named Rutilio Grande, who worked with and on behalf of the poor, was murdered by government forces while driving through the sugarcane fields on his way to celebrate Mass. That experience seems to have changed everything for Romero. The Spirit transformed Romero into someone who, for the next three years, worked tirelessly as an advocate for the poor, spoke out against government violence, called the rest of the church to do the same, even as the government turned its violence toward the clergy in El Salvador. On March 24, 1980, I'm aware that today is March 21st, right? Archbishop Romero gathered with other worshipers in a hospital to celebrate Mass. His text for the day, John 12, 23 to 26. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. He exhorted followers of Jesus to present their own lives as a sacrifice for others in the model of Christ. And as he ended his sermon and turned to prayer, shots rang out. He was assassinated, and he died. His sermon on this passage were the last words that he spoke. And from that single seed, God has brought about many. Talk about a parable. I think right now we are facing multiple catalytic events all at once. All of us, individuals as a community, as a church community, and we too face a choice, self-preservation or surrender. Will we protect ourselves and pursue the kingdom on our own terms? Will we surrender to what the Spirit's doing in our midst, seeking to do God's will in God's way? Most of us will not be called to literally give our lives like Archbishop Romero. But all of us are called to surrender. The posture of surrender is this. The practice of surrender is prayer. Not my will, but yours be done. The place of surrender is the table of the Lord where Christ offers himself freely to us and for us and for all people. As we turn to Jesus and pray with him, Father, glorify your name. We too can receive the assurance of the Father today. I have and I will. Glory. Amen.